Good evening. Thank you for the introduction. Tonight, you're going to hear information that has been researched by the Gateways Seminar. It's one of about 13 lectures that one hears over a period of a weekend. And this information has been responsible for giving listeners the reaction of walking out the room saying, I got more information in this lecture than I did in a life of Sunday schools combined. And that the clarity on Jewish identity, Jewish values that one leaves with, gives a different confidence to the continuity of giving over one's values and clarity of Jewish identity to the next generation and to our grandchildren. This evening's presentation is entitled, The Exodus. How do we know it really happened? And this will include researching the origin of what we know to be the Jewish people. What is the backbone, what is the genesis that makes us the Jewish nation that has propelled us from events in history some many thousands of years ago and yet here we still are able to identify ourselves as the direct descendants of that nation. What are the events that propels us from history into the future and makes us stand here tonight? And I made the calculation exactly 3,311 years and 50 weeks this evening from the Exodus. Let us look. What is this event about and what it was preparation for when we identify that seven weeks later we stood at Mount Sinai and we Jews then walked away with the greatest claim ever made in history that God spoke to an entire nation and we experienced it. Let's look at the Exodus and understand that even though it's narrated to us in the Torah, in the book of Exodus, right from the very beginning of, of the second book of the Torah, of the Bible, the plagues we see listed, chapters 6 to 12, the Exodus itself takes place in chapter 13 onwards. But actually, it began in chapter 15 of Genesis. Because it is there that Abraham receives a vision from God in which God tells him that your nation, your descendants will become slaves to a foreign empire for 400 years and at the end of this slavery I will take them out with tremendous wealth. When a person hears a prophecy the obvious risk is that if it doesn't come true, whoever gave this information has destroyed their credibility. So when we talk about the Torah giving us a narration of the Exodus, first we want to know, well, who says the Torah is true? Maybe it was written by people after the events occurred, and then wrote about prophecies that will happen, and then wrote about the prophecies unfolding. So how do you and I know that the Exodus really began with a prophecy in Genesis, 
chapter 15, as reported in the Torah, and it's not till a whole book later that we actually see the Exodus take place. How can we identify that the book is veritable in the first place? I want to share with you the following statements taken from what is relatively a new science. One of the most recent sciences, besides physics, is that of archaeology. Archaeology is a science where people who are notable historians dig up the earth to identify the past. When we quote tonight from secular historians, not just Jewish and certainly not religious historians and archaeologists, let's listen to what they have to say about this recent science in their discoveries in digging up our backyard, the land of Israel. And listen to the intensity of the conclusions they come to. And I quote, Will Durant, in the story of civilization, volume 1, if for the purpose of scientific investigation we disregard its supernatural character and view it solely in terms of the data we process, the Bible has withstood the test of both criticism and archaeology. Each passing year adds to our store of knowledge and provides us with more and more documents, inscriptions, monuments and excavations which confirms its historical accuracy. Science is now in a position to state categorically that the Bible is factual until proven otherwise. Professor, Professor Nelson Gluck, in his book Rivers in the Desert, page 31, also an archaeologist, as a matter of fact, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible and by the same token proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. They form in the vast mosaic of the biblical's almost incredibly correct historical memory. A few more quotes briefly and then we'll give some examples of what they found. William Foxwell Albright, the Mosaic tradition, Moses being the leader of the Jewish people, is so consistent, so well attested by different Pentateuchal documents, and so congruent with our own independent knowledge of the religious development of the Near East in the late 2nd millennium BC, that only hypercritical pseudo-rationalism can reject its essential historicity. Taken from W.F. Albright, Archaeology and Religion, page 96. The same author, Albright, in his book, From the Stone Age, New York Press, 1963, page 241. It is not our intention here to dwell on the history of the patriarchal age in Palestine. So many corroborations of details have been discovered in recent years that most competent scholars have given up the old critical theory according to which the stories of the patriarchs and matriarchs 
are mostly stories and legends from the time of the dual monarchy, 9th to 8th centuries BC. The quotes go on. The same W.F. Albright, in his book, The Biblical Period, page 1 to 3. Hebrew national tradition excels all others in its clear picture of tribal and family origins. In Egypt and Babylonia, in Assyria, Phoenicia and Greece and Rome, we look in vain for anything comparable. There is nothing like it in the tradition of the Germanic peoples. Neither India nor China can produce anything similar. In contrast with these peoples, the Israelites preserved an unusually clear picture of simple beginnings, of complex migrations, and of extreme vicissitudes, which plunged them from their favored status under Joseph to bitter oppression after his death. Until recently, it was the fashion amongst biblical historians to treat the patrial ages, patriarchal ages of Genesis as though they were artificial creations of Israelite scribes of the Davidic monarchy, or tales told by imaginative storytellers around Israelite campfires during the centuries following their occupation of the country we know as Palestine. Eminent names among scholars can be cited for regarding every item of Genesis chapters 11 to 50 as, reflected, as reflecting late invention or at least retrojection of events and conditions under the monarchy into the remote past, about which nothing was thought to have been really known to the writers of later days. Archaeology and its discoveries since 1925 has changed all this. Aside from a few die-hard amongst old scholars, there is scarcely a single intellectually honest biblical historian who has not been impressed by the rapid, rapid accumulation of data supporting the substantial historicity of patriot, patriarchal tradition. The quotes go on and on. An altar on Mount Avel, which is described in Deuteronomy 31, where Moses tells Joshua, when you enter the land which was promised to Abraham, chapter 12 in Genesis, and this prophecy is now unfolding. Joshua, when you enter the land as leader of the Jewish people, after you've conquered the enemies, which is also a prophecy, that you will conquer them with God's help, set up a Mizbeah, an altar, on Mount Aval. We don't know the traditional dimensions of an altar, except from the oral transmission, the Mishnah, the Talmud. We know that the altar in the temple was 32 cubits by 32 cubits. And it had two ramps. In the 1960s, Mount Aval was dug up. And they found underneath the ground an altar measuring 32 cubits by 32 cubits. And over 900 bones were found beneath the altar amongst bones and ashes. And archaeologists identified from the shape of the bones and DNA, which is more recent, that every single one of these bones came from either a goat, a cow, or a sheep. Which indicates this could not possibly have been a pagan altar. These are the only animals which are permitted and kosher to offer on an altar.
But what's phenomenal about this discovery is that in Joshua, I believe it's chapter 8, where the description is given of having conquered all the peoples of the land of Canaan, now built the Mizbeach, this altar, which he had received as instruction from Moses in chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, this was a discovery that for the first time for archaeologists and scientists now were able to date the time of the Torah. Because until now, we only knew for sure that the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Torah, some 2400 years ago, 2800 years ago, that's the earliest time we can say that the Torah is its date. And that any event that's written about the past, we don't know if that event is true to the past. It may have been written by people at that time, 2800 years ago, and they made up the stories. But from the excavations that show over 100 cities and battlefields described in the book of Joshua as being accurate to the name and the description of lifestyle, culture, implements that were used at the time, we now, bed, we now date, because of this finding, the Torah all the way back to the wanderings in the desert. And don't forget, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, was described as a translation of an ancient document. So we know it's at least a couple hundred years older than that. One or two more quotes, and we'll move a little further. Dr. Yochanan Haroni, first Jew that I'm quoting tonight, recent archaeological discoveries, and this is in his, in his book Canaanite Israel during the period of Israeli occupation, published by the Israeli Defense Forces in 1959, pages 2 to 3. Recent archaeological discoveries have decisively changed the entire approach of Bible critics. They now appreciate the biblical text as a historical document of the highest caliber. Their basic theories have been drastically altered because parallel documents have been found that describe the very same events recorded in the biblical narrative from the perspective of, perspective of the ancient Egyptians, Assyrians and Canaanites. Events described in the Bible no longer exist in a historical vacuum. Today we are familiar with the general political map of the ancient world, its populations and its geography. We are familiar with the customs and the laws that are described in the Bible, as well as names and places which are mentioned, all from archaeological excavations. All of these are compatible solely with the period of biblical history under consideration. No author or authors or editors could have put together or invented these stories as recorded in the Bible hundreds of years after they occurred. No serious Bible scholar remains who can argue with the fact that these historical events were transmitted with incredible accuracy from generation to generation. Dr. Albright, from the Stone Age, page 255. What about excavations of Egypt? With our present knowledge of the topography of the Eastern Delta, the account of the start of the Exodus, given in Exodus chapter, 20, chapter 12, verse 37, and chapter 13, verse 20, that's the actual Exodus itself. Prior to that were the ten plagues. 
The account of the start of the Exodus given is perfectly sound topographically. That means the terrain of the, of, the, of the ground. And Alan Gardner, who long objected to its historicity on topographical grounds, has recently withdrawn his objections. Many additional pieces of evidence for the substantial accuracy of the account of the Exodus and the wanderings in the regions of Sinai, Midian and Kadesh. These are different locations which the book in Numbers identifies as camps that the Jewish people stayed during their wanderings in the desert can easily be given thanks to our greatly increased knowledge of topography and archaeology. We must content ourselves here with the assurance that there is no longer any room for the still dominant attitude of hypercriticism toward the early historical traditions of Israel. Even the long contested date of the Exodus can now be fixed within reasonable limits. One of the most amazing findings in the Delta area at Memphis, not Tennessee, Memphis in Egypt is the finding of the papyri, the famous papyri known as the Ipikua papyri. It's difficult to pronounce. That's the name of the person who claims to be the author of this papyri. Etched in stone, this papyri contains the words of an Egyptian named Ipikua. And this papyri was acquired in 1828 by the Leiden or Leiden Museum in the Netherlands. It is not known under which circumstances the papyri containing the words of Ipacure was found. According to its first possessor, Anatasai, it was found in Memphis, by which is probably meant the neighborhood of the pyramids of Saqqara. In 1828, the papyri was acquired by the Museum of Leiden in the Netherlands and is listed in the catalogue as Leiden number 344. And I'm going to quote to you here from what the archaeologists and those who deciphered the writing, how they have identified what events are being described to us and the exact translation. The papyri is not a collection of proverbs or riddles. No more, no more is it a literary prophecy or an admonition concerning profound social changes. It is the Egyptian version of a great catastrophe. The papyri is a script of lamentations, a description of ruin and horror. The starting point of this research was the following. The exodus from Egypt took place at the time of a great natural catastrophe. So a supernatural catastrophe. In order to find the time of the Exodus in Egyptian history, we have to search for some record of catastrophe in the physical world. This record is contained in the Papyri Apicure. And I quote to you, those who want to look afterwards, I've got uh, a photocopy here of it, but anyone who wants a photocopy of the original and its inscription in English, I'll be happy if you take, give me your number at the end of the class, I will fax you a copy or mail it. Papyri, chapter 2, they divide it up into sections, I'm going to call them chapters, and verses, numbered lines. But first let me give you what's described in the Bible in chapter 20, sorry, chapter 7, verses 20 to 24, as a most unusual plague, the first plague in Egypt. The river, Nile, turning to blood? <laughs> Verse 20 in chapter 7 of Exodus. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. 
He lifted up the rod and struck the water in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and his courtiers. And all the water in the Nile was turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died. The Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. They could not drink the water of the Nile. Papyri, section 2, line 5 to 6. Plague is throughout the land, blood is everywhere. Papyri 2, line 10. The river is blood. Papyri 2, line 10. Men shrink from tasting and the thirst after water. Papyri 3, line 10 to 13. That is our water. That is our happiness. What shall we do in respect thereof? All is ruin. What was denial to the Egyptians? God. It was their lifeline. This is our life. This is our happiness. What shall we do in respect thereof? All is ruin. Pestilence. According to Exodus 9, verses 1 to 3, Then the hand of the Lord will strike your livestock in the fields, the horses, the asses, the camels, the cattle and the sheep, with a very severe pestilence. Papyri, section 5, line 5. All animals, all animals, their hearts weep, cattle moan. Strange plague, hail and fire. We're given a description of columns of fire coming down in Exodus 9, verses 19 to 27. I'll share one or two of those verses and look at the parallel. Verse 19, Therefore order your livestock and everything you have, this is Moses giving warning to Pharaoh, all your livestock that you have in the open brought under shelter, every man and beast that is found outside, not having brought indoors, shall perish when the hail comes down upon them. Those among Pharaoh's courtiers who feared the Lord's word brought their slaves and livestock indoors to safety. But those who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the open. Papyri, section 9, verse 2 to 3, line 2 to 3. Behold, cattle are left to stray, and there is none to gather them together. Each man fetches for himself those that are branded with his name. Verse 24. The hail was very heavy, fire flashing in the midst of the hail. This is in Exodus. The hail also struck down all the grasses of the field and shattered all the trees of the field. Papyri, section 2, line 10. Forsooth, gates, columns and walls are consumed by fire. Papyri 4, line 14. Trees are destroyed. Papyri 6, line 1. No fruit nor herbs are found. Hunger throughout the land. And it continues to give the parallels of each plague. I'll just share with you the last one. Death of the firstborn. Strange catastrophe. Firstborn in each family should die? Where's that coming from? Exodus 12, verse 29. In the middle of the night, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Papyri 4, line 3, and, line, and 5, line 6. Forsooth the children of princes are dashed against the walls. Papyri 6, line 3, the prison is ruined. Papyri 2, 13, he who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. 
in line 30 of Exodus 12, the Pharaoh arose in the night with all his courtiers and all the Egyptians because there was a loud cry in Egypt for there was no house where there was, no, there was not someone found dead. Papyri, he who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. Chapter 12, 12 verse 33 in Exodus, the Egyptians urged the people to make them leave in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. They see their firstborn lying dead everywhere. And they tell the Jews, get out, leave, please, we beg you. Papyri 4, line 2. Forsooth, great and small, say, I wish I might die. Leave our enemy. You know, I want to share a story. A kid once came home from Sunday school. And dad says to his son, Son, great to see you home. What do they teach you today in Sunday school? Oh dad, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. No really, what do they teach you? Oh dad, listen, this is what I... I listen. There's this General Moses. You can't believe he was such an incredible general. He had artillery, he had air force, he came in with an Navy, he came in with his commandos and his... Sp- snipers and he sieged the palace of Pharaoh he knocked down all the guards no one even noticed you can't believe he drowned the Egyptians it was a cr- he creamed them dad and he released all the Jews and the father says to his son that's not how they taught it to me in Sunday school well dad to be honest with you that's not what they told me either one. but you know if I told you what they told me you'd never believe it <laughs> we have here the exodus Related by a book which, outside verification, gives the stamp of accurate, according to scientific archaeological findings. But let's ask ourselves, in the magnitude of that event being true, let us understand a simple question. How is any event in history of any nation, any culture, any people, how is any event established as fact? either in court of law, or taken as fact by rational, intelligent, educated human beings. How do we establish any historical event as factual? Witnesses. We need eyewitnesses. Is it okay to have a testimony from someone who heard it from someone? That won't count. We need first-hand eyewitnesses to establish a fact. In fact, you know, Thanksgiving Day... Independence Day, July the 4th. Let me ask you, is there anyone in this room who knows someone who celebrates those occasions? Right? Okay, fine. I'm from England, so it's really not part of my culture. I can talk about Guy Fawkes. But let me ask you, is there anyone in this room who knows and believes that Thanksgiving Day existed last year? Yeah? Do you also agree that it existed the year before that? Did it exist the year before that? Did it exist the year before that? I mean, we're going to go all the way back to the actual event. And how is it known? Because people took upon themselves to celebrate. Whether it's with rituals, but they celebrated on that anniversary. Is there anyone in this room who has personally met George Washington? Now, don't put your hand up. (laughs) But you and I know he existed. How? Because hundreds of people, if not thousands encountered him in their lifetime and there are many records and that's passed down any event in British history my parents live on a road called Old Church Lane 
Why is it called Old Church Lane? Because it happens to be that the church and the churchyard right opposite our house is 1,100 years old. That's an old church lane. And just a few streets further down, in a place called Raysbury, is where the Magna Carta was signed. England is saturated with history. But according to archaeologists, internationally, there is no land on planet Earth which has given so much history beneath its surface as the land of Israel. The history of the Jewish people, according to biblical narration, has already been established as factual. But let's, let's move on a bit. Seven weeks later, after the Exodus, the Jewish people stood at Mount Sinai. And this was not the second greatest event in history. This is the first. The Exodus. The Exodus pales in contrast. Because here, the Jewish people are established for the first time as a nation. And it's there that the real origin of our heritage begins. At Sinai, we make the claim that God spoke to three million Jews. Eyewitnesses heard God speak to them. But how do we know? How do we really know? And you know what's really strange? How many religions are there in the phone directory? <laughs> now it's interesting, I used to teach comparative religion in, in, uh, in YU. And you can find something phenomenally unique about Judaism. One thing stands out more than anything else when you make a comparative of religions. And what is that one unique factor? First monotheistic religion. What? The first monotheistic religion. First monotheistic religion, that's correct. And based on what? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Very hot. Can you elaborate? National revelation. National revelation. The Ten Commandments. National revelation. Zoroastrianism. Hinduism. Buddhism. Christianity. Islam. None of them claim that God spoke to a large number of people. Now let me ask you. Let's get real rational, logical and honest. If you're going to start a religion, don't. But if you know someone who wants to start a religion, what makes more sense? Ladies and gentlemen... I have very solemn information to share with you. Last night, in my sleep, God spoke to me. Do you believe me? You don't believe me! I'm totally sincere! Charismatic! Believe me! Is it possible that some people who have either weak minds or emotions or in need of some sort of something to believe in might actually believe that I'm God's spokesman on earth? But I'm not saying that they also experience God communicating to them. They're relying on me and whatever credentials I might have. I might do something very fancy to impress you. I might, I'll give a ridiculous example, I might walk on water for example. Just to get you really, wow, how do you do that? He, he has supernatural connections. But let me ask you, the Torah itself tells us in chapter 17 in Deuteronomy, if someone comes to you with wonders and miracles and says God spoke to you, don't believe him if he changes one word from the book I've given to Moses. Let's check this out. Check this out. If I come to you 
and say, you know what? The other guys didn't believe me, but I figured it out this time. Ladies and gentlemen, last night I was in Madison Square Garden. And in front of 26,000 people, right in the middle of the Lakers and the Knicks, the roof miraculously opened up and a giant hand came firing down and pointed its big finger at me and said, You are my chosen prophet on earth to transmit my words and instructions to mankind. Wow. Now let me ask you, if you're going to make a claim, if you want to start a religion, which is a much more powerful claim to make? God spoke to me personally, or God spoke to me in front of thousands of people? Which one is much more powerful a claim? Obviously, the second. So wait a minute, how come if you go through the directory of religion, we're the only ones who say that God spoke to us en masse? What's the version in the Quran? Muhammad goes up a mountain, behind the mountain, chariot of fire. Who was there to witness God speaking to Muhammad and appointing him as the prophet on earth? Put this information into an international court of law. Where are the witnesses? Besides his donkey. None. Faith. That's total faith. You want to believe? But it's faith. Christianity. Ask Rabbi Tuya Singer. Internationally renowned expert on the New Testament. 914-356-2730. There are seven different versions in the New Testament about how Jesus came out the grave in his resurrection. And none of those seven versions say that anyone saw him get out. One version is that people pass by, oh my gosh, the grave is empty. Conclusion, he's come back. That's one version. The other version is that they, three people saw him walking around in shrouds after the funeral. Now let me ask you, if you're going to start a religion, wouldn't the following version sound much more impressive? Thousands of followers standing at the gravesite, reciting psalms, and suddenly the earth starts to shake, and the grave opens up, and Jesus comes out and says, I'm back! Now seriously, which is going to be much more impressive? Why doesn't any other religion come around and say, God spoke to a lot of people, and that's how we know? And what's the reason? There's a powerful logic. How do you and I know General Custer existed? How do you and I know there was a civil war? How do you and I know that there was a black plague? How do you and I know anything about the past as historically factual and accurate? Because if it didn't happen to one person, it can be verified. That's why if I tell you I was spoken to by God in Madison Square Garden, no problem! Call up all your friends in Manhattan, listen in to CBS, read the New York Times. If no one's talking about it, I'm sorry, you're nuts. We're the only ones who dared say God spoke to us. But it goes further than that. It's more powerful than that. What's God's opening what line in the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt 
the house of bondage. This is God's first communication with the people as a nation. And what's the introduction? One of our greatest commentators, Nachmanides, makes the obvious observation. God, you know what, you have quite an impressive resume. You're not, you know, it's not only the exodus that you're responsible for, you also happen to create the universe. Why didn't you introduce yourself? Hi guys, I am the Lord your God who created the universe. That would also be impressive. And the answer he gives is, we would have to believe in God on faith if he told us that, because you and I weren't there. But the exodus we experienced. We saw supernatural events taking place, and now the person, so to speak, the origin, the source of that power, reveals himself to us. But it's more than that. The danger, we said, of any prophecy is that if it doesn't come true, what does it do about, what does it say about the credentials of the so-called prophet? He's a fake. But what happens if that prophet, not only is he a fake and probably buried underground anyway, so there's nothing we can do about it, but what happens if that prophet says, in the name of God? You better be sure that you're telling the truth, because if you're wrong, God is wrong. If you're wrong, the Torah is a lie. It's a book that is a fake and a phony. And watch these words and listen carefully. Ex, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. Moses, in his dying days, tells the Jewish people the following. Ki she'al na. What does she'al mean? Ask. Na. What does na mean? Please. Please. Ki na. Will you please ask? Liyamim rishonim. About previous days. Moses is speaking to the Jewish people and saying, I don't care who's listening, whether it's you or future generations reading what is now being recorded. I want you to please ask the following question. And as you listen to this, ask yourselves, What's the risk factor in Moses putting this in writing? I want you to ask about the days that came before you. From the day that the Almighty created Adam, man, on the earth. From one end of the universe to the other end of the universe. Was there ever anything as great as this? We'll see in a moment, referring to the Exodus and Revelation. Was there ever an event as great as this? What's the obvious risk so far? If Revelation happened once, couldn't it happen again? And he's speaking to future generations. I don't care where you are, says Moses. You can be a hundred years from now, a thousand years ago. You can be 3,311 years and 50 weeks from now reading this. Ask this question, he says to us. I beg you, please, ask this question. Did it ever happen again? But he doesn't stop there. Or did you ever hear anyone else say it happened to them? Whoa. Now imagine, let's just pretend for a moment that Moses pulled off this whole revelation himself. Brilliant magician. Genius magician, right? And somehow he had access to batteries and, I don't know, uh, megaphones and hi-fi. And there he is at the top of the mountain. The Jews 
at there at the bottom, and he's screaming out through the megaphone, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. <laughs> oh, yeah, wow, wow, wow. And really, everyone bought the whole thing. Man-made. And the next morning, Moses, in his excitement, starts writing about the event. And Joshua, his right-hand man, sorry, his right-hand man, standing there, watches Moses as he's dictating. You know what? Anyone who's reading this, I want you to please ask the following question. Did it ever happen, an event as great as this? What's Joshua going to tell Moses? Hey, Moses, <laughs> if you pulled it off, then someone else could pull it off. So I don't think you should put that there. Just let the impressions sink in their minds and let them just go away thinking they really, it really happened. And you know what Moses says back to Joshua? No, oh, what are you talking about? I challenge you, any time in the future, did anyone else say it happened to them? Did you even, Hanishma did you hear anyone else say there was a divine revelation in their religion? Interesting. The danger of this prophecy is obvious, unless prophecy is not man-made. If the one who created the universe, the one responsible for the unfolding of history, is responsible for the destiny of mankind, only he who controls future events can possibly echo this claim through the mouthpiece of his leader Moses. This is not human prophecy. And I will read off to you now the following. This is not the only prophecy on this page. In line 26 to 32, same chapter 4 in Deuteronomy, Moses says, we're about to enter the land promised to Abraham. Prophecy number one, unfolding right in front of their eyes. Prophecy number two, you won't remain long on that land. Moses, you're not even coming with us. How are you going to control how long we're going to be there? This is not my prophecy. Prophecy number three, you will be rejected, expelled from that land. Moses, how do, you, how do you control the future? He hasn't finished yet. Prophecy number four, not only will you be rejected, expelled, you will be scattered through all the nations of the world, the four corners of the earth. Moses, you're getting carried away. How do you, how do, you do you realize what that means? That the Jewish people... As fragmented as we will be, we will still be identified as Jews in order that you'll be able to say that this came true because you've got to say that, oh, these are Jews over here in Australia, in America, in Japan, in Asia, in Morocco, in Czechoslovakia. You've got to be able to say that these are Jews. So you're taking a big risk. Moses, you know, I think you've gone too far. Haven't finished yet. And you will be persecuted by the nations, serve other gods, and in the end of days, Come back to God and the promised land. Whoa! Now you and I have an amazing privilege sitting in this room tonight. Because 3,311 years and 50 weeks after the event, we can go through the checklist. Did we enter the land of Israel? Check it off. Were we expelled? Roman conquest. Check it off. Were we scattered throughout all the nations? The Roman conquest, divide and conquer, we were scattered. We were, according to the first census of the Roman Empire, we were 9% of the Roman Empire. You will remain small in number. Are the Jews into small families? How do you, how do you guarantee that? Check it off. 
in the time of the Roman Empire, according to that census, that 9% represented approximately 3 million Jews. History claims that approximately the same century, how many Chinese were there? About 3 million. How many Chinese are there today? About 3 million. How many Chinese are there today? 1.2 billion. How many Jews? 14, 15? Do I hear 16? What happened? What happened? Prophecy will remain small in number. Check it off. Did it happen? We will be downtrodden, persecuted. According to secular historians, this is the only nation that has experienced universal, irrational anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is baffling everybody. No one can come up with a rational explanation. We're the only nation that has been consistently persecuted, butchered, expelled, burned at the stake, gassed. And you will return to me at the end of days. According to our calculation, the world is supposed to be 6,000 years. And we're right now in year 5,760. So we're getting pretty close to that claim. And we've already returned to the land, not in full. But that broke the one prophecy, one prophecy made by Christianity. Did you know that? Christianity made one prophecy. And you see how dangerous it is to make a prophecy. The risk, very risky. One prophecy made by Christianity in the 11th century, St. Augusta said that the Jewish people are damned forever because they rejected Jesus. And therefore they will remain wandering from one end of the earth to the other for all time to be an enduring testimony that they rejected Jesus, never to return to their promised land. In the 11th century, where were we? Medieval Europe, where, right, all over the place. Where was, did we have high positions in, in politics and government, in the kingdoms? We were underdogs. What was the risk in the prophecy at that time? How high was that risk? That we're going to somehow get back together and return to the land of Israel? Almost no risk. Wrong. Big risk. Because 1948, the United Nations declares the existence of the State of Israel. And what was the declaration that the Vatican only in the last two years rescinded? What declaration did the Vatican come out with in response to, oh, you went and smashed our prophecy. What did they say? What did they come out with? We do not, thank you, we do not recognize the existence of the State of Israel. Talking about denial. I mean, the country is there. But philosophically, how do they explain that the prophecy didn't come and we returned to the land? That prophecy, when it says returning to the land, it meant Jerusalem, the heart of Israel. Phew. 1967. Oh, no. They had to come up with another explanation. And what was their declaration this time? The prophecy is not a physical one, it's a spiritual one. Do you see how hard it is to make a prophecy? Wow. Let me quote to you from the Torah. Deuteronomy 11 verses 2 to 7. 
Moses speaking to the Jewish people. You must now realize that I'm not speaking of your children born after the Exodus, who did not know and did not see the lesson that God your Lord taught through His greatness and His mighty hand and His outstretched arm. There were the signs and the deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all his land. There was what he did to Egypt's forces, to their horses and chariots, when he swamped them with the water of the Red Sea, as they were pursuing you. God destroyed them so that even now they have not recovered. There was what he did in the desert until you came to this area. Thus, your own eyes have seen all the great deeds that God has done. Moses is reminding the Jewish people of what they went through. He's not asking them to accept it on his personal prophecy or communication from God. No, you were there. Chapter 19, verse 3 to 9 in Exodus. You saw what I did in Egypt, carrying you on eagle's wings and bringing you to me. Moses brought the people's reply back to God and God said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that all the people will hear when I speak to you. All the people will hear when I speak to you. And they will believe in you forever. Deuteronomy 29 verses 1 to 5 Moses summoned all Israel and said to them You have seen all that God did in Egypt before your very eyes to Pharaoh To all his servants and to all his land You, your own eyes, saw the great miracles Moses constantly reminds them You were first-hand witnesses This is what our transmission is about But the obvious question to ask Is that's all very well for the people who were there But you and I, 3,311 years and 50 weeks later, we weren't there. So how are we accepting it from our parents? As a matter of fact or faith? I'm going to ask you a question. Imagine a king. He passes away and he leaves behind two sons, princes, and he didn't write in his will who should take over after him. So obviously they're both campaigning against each other. Finally one of them says, you know what? He calls together his cabinet and says, my, my father the king came to me last night in a dream and told me that I'm the next one to be chosen. You're the ministers. You be his cabinet. How do you respond to the prince? What are you going to say to him? Of course you have to empathize. Oh, we're so happy for you. What a wonderful experience. I mean, it's so special to see your father again. But dear prince, if your father wants us to accept you as the next king. Whose dream should he be coming in? (laughs) When Jesus or Muhammad, Buddha or any other initial leader of any other religion made a claim, it's based totally on faith. Believe in me and believe in the Creator, the Spearhead, the Trinity. Moses speaks to the people and tells them, you were there. That's the difference between Judaism and every other, inverted commas, religion. But we still have to answer, how do you and I know? Because we weren't there. Yes, we've established that all factual events are recorded and then rituals are practiced. But the fact of the matter is, you and I got it from our parents and they weren't there, who got it from their parents who weren't there, etc., So we still have to figure out, how are we carrying the torch from generation to generation, bearers of the torch, passing down the transmission accurately? And listen carefully, because I'm going to switch completely to a different subject for a few moments. But watch the parallel. I'm about to build a model 
And in that model, the parallels are powerfully obvious. The parallel in this model is taking an event in history, which is in our generation, and asking, how can we be certain, not on the level of belief or faith, how can we be absolutely certain that our children and grandchildren will know this event took place? How many people believe in the Holocaust? How many people believe it really happened? How many people in this room are aware, I think we all are, that there are people in this generation contesting that either it didn't happen or at least it was an exaggeration? Would you expect such people to surface in the same generation that there are witnesses, people who are there, the survivors? Or you'd expect it afterwards because then at least there's no one to say, how do you know? And if you do hear it from anyone, would you expect it to hear from the low-class, oppressed, or the elite, academics, intellectuals? Where would you expect to hear it from? Educated or uneducated people? Uneducated. And yet, what do we find? Austin J. App, former associate professor of English at La Salle College, Philadelphia is the author of numerous neo-Nazi pamphlets. One, for example, called Did Six Million Really Die the Truth at Last? Robert Forreston holds a PhD from the Sorbonne in Paris and was dismissed from his position as Professor of French at Lyon University for revisionist views and convicted by a French court for defaming the victims of the Holocaust. He claims that Nazi gas chambers never existed and that facts about the Holocaust and the number of victims has been grossly exaggerated. George Pape, president of the German-American Committee of Greater New York, a cultural organization with over 50 branches in the metropolitan area, objected to the introduction of teaching the Holocaust in the school system with the words, there is no real proof that the Holocaust actually happened. And the list goes on. You and I know it happened because some of you have parents or relatives who were either there or even perished. But how will your children and grandchildren know? that the event was factual, or at least the way we recorded it. Forgive me for quoting Adolf Hitler in his book Mein Kampf in the Bavarian Jail, 1924. The receptivity of the great masses is very limited. Their intelligence is small, but their power of forgetting is enormous. In consequence of these facts, all effective propaganda must be limited to a very few points and must harp on these in slogans until the last member of the public understands what you want him to understand by your slogan. Hitler understood that when you tell a lie and you repeat it again and again and again, even in the face of people who know the truth, the eyewitnesses who will tell you it's just a lie, but you continue that lie into the next generation, the eyewitnesses aren't there. It's now on par with people who said, well, I heard differently. So now you've got two versions. And when in future generations they read in print, some say it was this way and some say it wasn't. I was in school 20 years ago in England. 20 years ago, history books had already recorded in print that there are claims that the Holocaust either never happened or it was an exaggeration. And this came from heavy funding from Arab propaganda in the English universities 20 years ago. So how do you expect your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, to know 
the Holocaust really happened. See the parallel. An event in history, prove it to a future generation. Not on level of faith, on level of certainty. Absolute knowledge. Imagine the following. Let's create a Holocaust Survivors Club. Let's create a criteria whereby we will guarantee that the memory of the Holocaust will survive into the future, no matter what. And that will be the following. We'll create a club and invite all survivors still alive today to come to Jerusalem and write their own personal account of what they went through in the Warsaw Ghetto, the cattle trucks, Buchenwald, Dachau, Auschwitz. And we'll create a large document with their personal accounts. And when everyone who's been invited has come, we will put a close-off date by which no one else can come and say they want to add to this testimony. And we're going to close that date, and we're going to call this document the scroll. And we're going to create special rules for this club. One rule will be, for example, every member of the club and every child who's born into the club of a parent or grandparent who survived the Holocaust must wear a Star of David on their outermost garment as a reminder of all the rules and that they are a member of this club. You know what else we'll do to help continue the memory of the Holocaust into the future? Every child born into the Holocaust Survivors Club will have tattooed on their arm the same number that their grandfather or their grandmother perished in the gas chambers with. We'll add another rule. You know, we'll take the scroll and we'll divide it into 52 approximately equal portions and wherever survivors of the Holocaust Club live around the world, they'll take a copy of the scroll with them and every, let's say, Saturday morning, they'll read a portion of that scroll. And that day they'll take off from work and they'll have ritual meals together, the family of that Holocaust Survivors Club, wherever they are around the world, and they'll discuss that portion of the week from that scroll. You know, we'll have another idea. We'll take one paragraph out of the entire scroll, which for us sums up the mission of what the Holocaust Survivors Club is really about. And perhaps that paragraph would sound something like this. Hear, O Israel! Remember, the Holocaust happened to us. Never forget. And you shall remember the Holocaust with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the rules of this scroll that you have committed to practice every day shall be on your mind and heart and you shall talk about these rules with your children when you sit in your house, when you travel outside your home, before you retire at night and when you awaken in the morning. And you shall write these words on the strips of parchment to be worn on your heads and arms every morning before you start your day. You shall write them on the doorposts of your homes and gates so that you remember the rules of this document all the days of your life. And we'll take this small piece of the scroll, we'll roll it up, and we'll put it on the doorpost of every Holocaust survivor's home. Wherever they are, America, Morocco, Czechoslovakia, London, Australia. And whenever you walk into a home where you see this little box containing this small paragraph, you'll know that they are the ones that testify that there was a Holocaust. We'll make up a few more rules. Let's have three festivals. 
in the Holocaust Survivors Club. One festival, one festival will commemorate the liberation from the camps. And you know what we'll do? For seven days, we'll sit on the floor eating potato peel dipped in puddle water. And on the first night of that seven-day festival, we'll gather together around the table with all members of the family, extended family, and we'll read specifically selected portions of the scroll that pertain to the liberation from the camps. And we'll hold up this potato peel at some point in this ceremony and we'll say, you know what? This is the food that we ate when our ancestors were slaves in the camps. And were it not for the liberators, if it were not for the allies who released us and saved us from the camps, we would have been totally destroyed. And we'll wear striped garments for that period. We'll have a second festival. A festival that will commemorate the day we came together in Jerusalem as a club. And on this festival, you know what we'll do? We'll stay up all night and we'll read different portions from the scroll which pertain to that special day that we gathered in Jerusalem and for the first time became a club. And a third festival to commemorate the DP camps. Possibly the most unpronounced episode of the entire post-Holocaust period. When tens and hundreds of thousands of survivors were in DP camps for as much as four and sometimes five years after 1945. Until they had papers or were given stateship to come to Israel or to London or to America and start a new life. Those were difficult days. Getting a visa, going from one embassy to another, trying to find family. And we'll commemorate that period until we settled many in the land of Israel and other places. We'll commemorate that period of wandering by living in tents for a whole week. And we'll say, you know, this is a temporary dwelling to remind us of the DP camp days. They were not easy. We'll have another rule. New membership. Now that's a sensitive issue. What do you do if someone comes and says, I want to join the Holocaust Survivors Club? Well, our first reaction is, why would you want to join? Your parents weren't there. Your grandparents weren't surviving. They weren't in the Holocaust. Why would you want to join our club? So we try to push them off. But if they insist and say, you know what? Even though I still want to commit to all the rules and I sincerely demonstrate interest and conviction, we accept them. But otherwise, we're not looking for new members. Why don't we look for new members? Because the purpose of the club is to commemorate and perpetuate the memory of an event that happened to us. We don't, we're not looking for others to join to increase the testimony. The testimony is strong because our ancestors were there and passed it down to their children, to their children, down to us. We'll make a rule. Anyone who comes along and says, I want to change the scroll. What should we do? What should we do? Who said crucify? No, we, we, you we're, no one's allowed to meddle with our scroll. Because this is our testimony of what really happened. We don't want anyone coming with a new testimony and saying that there's a new version the old one is out of date.
We don't accept that. That's not acceptable to us. And another rule. Every family has to have its own scroll. The parallel is obvious. But you know something? It did happen. There was a gathering in Jerusalem in 1981 of survivors of the Holocaust. And I quote to you, Jerusalem, June the 14th to 18th, 1981, the World Gathering of Jewish Holocaust Survivors. Ernest Michel, Chairman of the World Gathering. And I quote, My name is Ernest Michel, Auschwitz number 104995. Like many of you, I had a dream that one day, if we live, we could come and stand together. This is a reunion of a special group of people for which we want to stand together once more before time runs out, united in freedom as we were in slavery. We want to see in each other's eyes and the eyes of our children the proof of our survival and the joy that comes from being alive and free. But there's more than that. We survivors want to tell those who try to rewrite history and deny the Holocaust ever happened, our eyes have seen Our ears have heard, our nostrils were filled with the acrid fumes from the gas chambers drifting over our camp day after day, week after week, year after year. These hands, and Michel holds his hands up in the air, have carried more corpses than I care to remember. So don't tell us it never happened. We were there. I am pleased to announce that they have formed here in Jerusalem a second-generation international network whose major purpose will be to carry on the memory of the Holocaust. Moving forward in the quote, this was the evening of the future, the transmission of the legacy. And in six languages, Hebrew, Yiddish, English, French, Ladino and Russian, a survivor read the legacy and a son or grandson of a survivor received it. And for 45 minutes, 10,000 people sat in perfect silence as an Israeli, an Australian, a New Yorker, and another Israeli survivor read in each of the six languages. Eli Wiesel, invited to comment on this conference, gave the following response at a press conference. The second generation is the most meaningful aspect of our work. Their role, in a way, is even more difficult than ours. They are responsible for a world they did not create. They, who did not go through the experience, must transmit it. Interesting. That the Holocaust survivors understood that unless you write a legacy and you pass it on, no guarantee it will be remembered. Let me ask you, the parallel is powerful. An event in history Project it into the future. How do you tell the future generation it really happened? You have a whole people practicing rituals and ceremonies, reminding them of the Holocaust. We survived Egypt. The Exodus stood at Mount Sinai. We're given 613 instructions, and they've been transmitted to us generation after generation after generation. How powerful an argument is that? Let's ask Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion, the first Prime Minister of the State of Israel, was he known for his deep affinity and love of traditional Judaism? Nope. Responsible for a secular education, 
teaching everything to Jewish children minus God. And yet, listen to the words of Ben Gurion when he was invited to speak to the United Nations to give the most compelling argument for why they should vote that the Jewish people have the right to their own land. What was the most powerful information, the most powerful argument he could possibly come up with to persuade the nations of the world that we should have our own home? I quote from Ben Gurion in his speech in front of the Anglo-American Investigation Committee of the United Nations, 1948. About 300 years ago, a ship set sail for the New World, and its name was the Mayflower. Its passengers were Englishmen who had become disgusted with their government and their society. They set out in search of some deserted shore to establish a new life for themselves. They landed in America, and they were the first founders of that land and that people. This was an important event in the history of both England and America. And for this reason, to this day, every American child knows of the Mayflower, the Pilgrims, Plymouth Rock, and November 25th, Thanksgiving Day. I am, however, very interested in knowing if any Englishman, or American for that matter, is aware of the hour and the day that the Mayflower set sail. Does any child or even adult know how many Pilgrims were there on this historical voyage? What were their names and the names of their families? What did they wear? What did they eat? Where did they get water to drink? And what path did they navigate? And what happened en route? Continues Ben Gurion. Behold, it was more than 3,300 years ago that the Jews set out from Egypt. Every Jewish child all over the world, in America, Soviet Russia, Yemen and Germany, knows exactly how his ancestors left at dawn on the 15th of Nisan. What did they wear? Their loins were girded, their sandals were on their feet and their staffs were in their hands. And he quotes Exodus chapter 12 verse 11. They ate matzah and they arrived at the Red Sea after a seven day journey. These children also know the route that their ancestors travelled and what events transpired during their 40-year trek in the wilderness. They ate mun and quail, they drank water from the well of Miriam, and they arrived at the borders of the Promised Land on the banks of the Jordan River facing Jericho. They know the names of their ancestors and they can quote them to you from the five books of Moses. Concludes Ben-Gurion. Till this day... Jews the world over eat the same matzah for seven days, starting from the 15th of Nisan each year. And they relate the story of the exodus and the tribulations that the Jews have suffered from the day they left their land and wandered into exile. And they end by shouting two phrases that children and parents and grandparents have been saying for thousands. Now we are slaves, next year we will be free men. Now we are here in exile, next year we will be in Jerusalem, in the land of Israel. This is the nature of the Jews. Unquote. Ben-Gurion 
not a lover of traditional Judaism, could not find a more compelling argument than the unbroken chain of transmission of parent to child for 3,000 years. Einstein, last quote, was asked on an interview if you could meet any personality in history and ask that person one question. Who would that person be and what would the question that you would ask? Interesting. Possibly the greatest, deepest mind of the 20th century. And what was his answer? His answer was... This is recorded by Professor Bernard Henry Levy. Einstein, uh, the interviewer, expected to hear Newton or Archimedes acknowledge geniuses whose discoveries form the basis of all modern scientific research and discovery. Einstein's answer, however, was, I would choose to meet Moses. And I would ask him, how did he know that his people would keep the Torah for such a long time? This was the most begging question in the mind of one of the greatest geniuses known to men. But we know why. Prophecy didn't come from Moses. It's from God to Moses, to us. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are sitting in a court of law, 3,311 years and 50 weeks into the future, and the Holocaust is on trial, and you are the jury, and standing here is a young man, 23 years old, and next to him, a young woman. And they're both wearing a star of David on their outermost garment. And you ask them, you cross-examine, what's this yellow star of David for? We wear it as a symbol, a reminder that we are members of a Holocaust Survivors Club. And our parents wore this, and their parents before them. And standing over here, on trial, is the Exodus and divine revelation at Sinai. And you see here, 3,311 years and 50 weeks later, a young man and woman, and you ask them, why are you wearing tzitzit, these tassels? And the answer is, this reminds me of all the rules that I'm supposed to keep, because I'm a member of those who testify that God spoke to us. And why do you have a tattoo on your arm? You ask the Holocaust Survivors Club member to remind us that our ancestors had numbers tattooed on their arms, paralleling circumcision. And why do you keep this ritual where you wear these boxes on your head with parchments and you kiss this parchment on the doorway? What's all this about? Well, the doorposts remind us that every single one of us came from the Holocaust Survivors Club. And in there is the parchment that tells us our mission statement. Never forget, it happened to us. And you ask this Jew over here, why is he kissing that parchment on the doorpost? And he'll tell you, because inscribed in, his, in there is a mission statement of the Jewish people, that we came out of Egypt, that's why it's on the doorpost, because the firstborn were killed of the Egyptians, and the Jewish firstborn were spared. And we remind ourselves, Shema Yisrael, 
Listen, Israel, God is our God. He always has been, always will be. He's one. Monotheism. And you ask, what are these rituals that on the night of these seven days that you eat puddle water with dipped potato peel, what's all this about? We were liberated from the camps. And you ask the parallel question, we were liberated from Egypt. And it goes on and on, all the parallel questions. I ask you, is this young man and this young lady who are following the laws of Jewish family purity and whatever other rules they have in the Holocaust Survivors Club or 3,311 years later from Sinai and the Exodus, could this be the result of people coming together and saying, what lie could we perpetrate for thousands of years? And how could we convince our children to do totally irrational rituals? Circumcision? How do you... How could you get people to do that for thousands of years? You are the jury. Madam, what is your name? Joyce. Joyce, I don't know, but it may be that your ancestors might have been Roman in in the time of the Roman Empire. And your Jewish, Jewish, great, 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 great grandfather was persecuted and killed. But your great, 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 great grandmother survived. And she moved her family to maybe some other part of the empire and you're a direct descendant. Madam, what is your name? My name is Doris. Doris, I don't know, but it might be that many, many years ago your great, 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 great grandparents were living under the Greeks and under their persecution your grandmother was killed and the great, 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 great grandfather survived and you are a direct descendant. Sir, what is your name? Jeff. Jeff? I don't know, but maybe you come from the Persian Empire and back then One of your ancestors was killed, but maybe the children survived and they took the scroll to Alexandria where they continued the transmission. Every one of us in this room comes from somewhere and the Jewish people survived. Persian Empire, Babylonian Empire, Greek Empire, Roman Empire, Crusades, Inquisition, Hitler. In this century alone, we've survived three empires, the Third Reich, Communism, British Empire, didn't really have an agenda to destroy us, but I'm uh, confessing over here. We've survived them all because of prophecy. And if you go to Israel today, and you go to Caesarea, and you'll see an Israeli without a yarmulke, and he's giving a tour guide, or Jericho, and he's showing a contingency of Swedish tourists, or German tourists, or American tourists, and he's saying, here are the Babylonians, here were the Romans, here buried the Greeks. Who's speaking to who? About who? Interesting. We're here telling the story of those who tried to destroy us and showing their grave sites. The Jewish people are called Artem Edai, Nu'um Hashem. Isaiah 43, you are my witnesses, declares God. You are the jury, you've heard the evidence. Here stands a man and woman claiming to be members of the Holocaust Survivors Club. Here stand a man and woman claiming to be descendants of the, Holocaust, of, the, of the Exodus and Sinai. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard the evidence. You are the jury. The verdict is yours. Thank you.